Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Wednesday last week, the Minnesota Supreme Court upheld the state's current law stating that people with felony records will still have their right to vote withheld until completing their full sentence. The entire sentence, this could extend beyond their time in prison to include parole or probation or restitution coming up with the money for that. The court's decision leaves it up to the state legislature now to change the laws on the books. Now, the House has already passed a bill that could restore the voting rights of several thousand former felons. And the Senate is working on a similar bill. Where does this debate go from here? We have asked Isaiah, Minnesota lead field organizer, Brian Fullman, to join us now on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline. Good evening, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Wonderful. I'm awake much later than I normally am, but I'm having a, a nice evening, enjoying talking to a number of different people, including yourself. Um, when you heard this on Wednesday, uh, your thoughts, I mean, were you dejected? Kind of explain how it felt to, to hear that news. Well, it was it was hurtful. Uh, it, it was unfortunate. Uh, I, I do always want to believe that, uh, you know, the, the high court of the state that you reside in, for me, that's Minnesota, would actually see things our way and understand why it's so important that brothers and sisters who are re-entering society uh, have a voice. Uh, if we expect them to be law-abiding citizens and productive in society, we expect them to get a job and pay towards the taxes and of the city and state, then they should have proper representation. And there's no more appropriate representation than your own voice, your own vote. So it, 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 it was uh, it, it, it was disheartening. It, 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 it did sting a little bit. But we, we understand, too, the momentum and, and what we have going right now in the legislature. And, and, and we got one last stop before it hits the governor's desk. So we still feel hopeful of the organizer never stopped. Brian, does it happen that if the governor signs this into law, does that supersede what the court has decided? So I don't know. So I think that's more of a question for the lawyer. But I will tell you this, uh, and it was actually expressed, too, uh, in the response from the Supreme Court, that it should be the legislator who makes that decision. We knew the whole time, like they did, that the power is actually in the legislature. And if, for me as an organizer, in my perspective, what more sustainable, what more powerful law can it be than the law that actually took the process of enrolling our residents of the state of Minnesota? Uh, and so I feel very confident uh, that we're going to actually move this bill into law through res- legislation. Uh, and I also feel like it's, it's a more powerful and bold and very legible way to say uh, that the people of Minnesota want this. 
And we are talking again with Brian Fullman. He is with Isaiah, Minnesota, a lead field organizer, talking about the decision this past week, the Minnesota Supreme Court decision upholding the state's current law. That law, uh, 1963 state law, spelled out that when a person's sentence ends, it has to have run its course. And that kind of is the point at which some conversation was had is, when is that? Is that when they get out of prison? Is that when they finish parole? Is that when they pay restitution? And Brian, as you say, um, it should be, in, in your opinion, and obviously in this law that lawmakers are looking at, this bill, it should be when the person is out of incarceration, correct? Absolutely. So right now, as it stands, if we trust people to reenter society, and again, we expect them to look at society and make it part ownership in their own world and to say, you know what, I, I feel really good about society and I feel like I'm being included. I feel like I'm being welcomed back to society. Then we have to express that through our policies. Our laws actually have to reflect our values and our morals. So, yes, uh, we want our brothers and sisters to be able to come out in the community and know that their voices are respected, valued, and heard. Uh, and, and, and there is some research out there with, with proper documentation that, People who are invited to civic engagement and encouraged to actually use their voice, recidivism actually goes down in the state. Mm -hmm. People actually buy into society if they feel like they've been included. Right. And just to let listeners know that this uh, felons, restoring a felon's right to vote, really does affect members of uh, African-American and people of color communities in Minnesota more than whites, would you say? Uh, I'll say this, because right now I live in Minnesota, so there'll be more white people who actually will have their benefits immediately restored than black. But the numbers are so severely disproportionate. Mm. So we don't make up we don't make up, you know, we don't make up 10 percent of the state uh, as African-Americans. But we also we also make up close to a third of the community that is incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So so there's a lot of our white brothers and sisters who as soon as this bill becomes law, uh, the right to vote will be restored to them. But there's a there's a grand number of black folks here in the state in Minnesota who rights will be restored to them. And those numbers, uh, uh, again, are disproportionate when you look at the amount of people, the percentage of people that live here that are white and the percentage of people that live here uh, that are not. Right. And isn't the number, I forget how many thousand African-Americans would be eligible to vote if this law goes into effect. It was thousands, yeah, so, I know. Was it 50,000? More than that? Well, not not specifically African-Americans. 55,000 people will have their rights. And that's and that's a, that's a rough estimate. Okay. 55,000 plus people will have the right, uh, will have their voting rights restored. Mm -hmm. Of that, I'm not sure about the number of how many African-Americans, because first, for me as an organizer, what I'm trying to do is have something that actually impacts and affects people across the state. Okay. Uh, so I haven't been so much focused on exactly what it would do for one community, but what would it do for us across this community in my mission to build a multiracial democracy in the state of Minnesota? I see. So it's everybody. It's important that everybody votes. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Right, right. And so let's talk a little bit about the work you do at Isaiah as a field um, organizer. I mean, Obviously, has your effort been completely on restoring felons' right to vote, or what is the work that you do with Isaiah? Sure. So my role in Isaiah is I'm one of the five lead organizers for Isaiah. Uh, I organize and direct the work for the Barbershop and Black Congregation Cooperative. 
Uh, we have different rooms in the house. Uh, the Muslim Coalition of Isaiah, Kids Count on Us, it organizes daycares. We've got the Young Adult Coalition. Uh, so we have different rooms in the house uh, to, meet the, to meet the needs and on-ramp as many constituent spaces as we possibly can reach. And so for me, that's West African and African Americans in the state of Minnesota. And so uh, the restoration of voting rights is just another one of those disenfranchisements that we're trying to dismantle. Uh, the same as it may be the public safety is an issue that we work on. Uh, right now we're working on rent stabilization in Minneapolis, uh, making sure there's some kind of regulation for landlords who are just going around exploiting people for the lack of resources that they have and got them on high rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it varies from health care, housing, child care, uh, you, you name it, any inequity uh, or any disparity uh, that is affecting people on a day-to-day basis, we're looking to dismantle that and close the gap. Is it astonishing that Minnesota has such an extreme racial disparity gap and that people seem, I guess, I shouldn't say that people seem oblivious to it, but maybe they do. I was reading not so long ago uh, for Black History Month some of the disparities around home ownership, around wealth, and yet it persists. Are you feeling hopeful of closing the disparities with this legislative makeup as it is right now and a lot of these bills that are passing? Or do you feel like we still have so much more to do to close the gap? I feel hopeful about a multiracial democracy that we're building. In the state of Minnesota, I feel hopeful about us actually shifting and changing the culture of democracy and how we actually look at democracy and understanding that if, if we get full representation from every community, then we all get a little taste of what we want. And so the first thing that we have to achieve is for the state to understand that we actually become a better state collectively when we consider and we prioritize every voice in this state. So I, I feel hopeful about the first step. I'm not astonished at the disparity gaps. I've, I've lived in them all my life. And I, I mean, there's a lot of people who can't name what the disparity is, but if they take the ride in a car or they take the bus, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes west to east, they'll be in a totally different area with mm. totally different abundance of resources than they actually come from. So the disparities are very obvious when you're living in them. Right. Uh, it's just that they don't you know, they, they don't know how to name them, but they see them all the time. Right, right, right. And I think if it's not affecting you personally, you're not paying attention to it. And that's part of the solution, I think, is for people that aren't living in the disparity to understand and have some empathy for those that do live in, in the disparity. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense because ultimately it will begin to affect you. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I just don't think it's human nature at all to to have it, to hoard resources mm-hmm. and still have to travel through or go through the city and see people who don't. Uh, mm-hmm. People may see you may go. You may have relatives that go to the same churches with some of your community members that are severely disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. After a while, it meets you at your door. It's just hard to live in a city or state where there's a hoard. Of there's an abundance of resources that are being hoarded in certain particular areas of the state, mm-hmm. when the rest of the city and the rest of the people who live in these, you know, uh, deprived areas and disparity-filled areas, it's just a little hard to continue to ignore year after year. That's why it's so important that we have proper representation when we use an opportunity. Brian, do you, how important is home ownership in the solution? Is that just a small piece, a big piece in terms of the whole picture of? 
closing the and closing the gap, the disparity gap. Yeah, I think I think home ownership is very important. I think ownership, period, mm. is very important. I think having an entrepreneurial spirit and being having people in your house and having kids actually been raised in the culture of entrepreneurship is very, very important. But what's very important is how to manage that. What's very important is learning how to actually manage, mm. learning how to sustain. If you have home ownership, is great. I mean, but don't be like me. Don't step into home ownership without actually being educated on what it is to own a home where it's productive for you and your family mm-hmm. and, and not get into a balloon and our mortgage like I did when I first became a home ownership. So I'm, the reason why I raised that is home ownership is great. Education about ownership and home ownership is even greater. Right. And that's the piece that often you just say, well, let's just give a person a home. Well, no, there's a lot involved in that. It's not just exactly. having that home. Well, I appreciate the work you do. As you say, you know, a multiracial democracy, even though Minnesota is still pretty, pretty lily white, the country as a whole is changing in demographics, you know, and that what do they say now? Kindergartners in the United States by the year something will be all um, minority. They'll all be people of color, whatever that race is, that it won't be the mixing of of. DNA, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would even, and I would even challenge. So I would even challenge that uh, Minnesota's not lily white no more. I would, I would maybe describe it as off white. Okay. Now we, okay. we're getting there. We're getting there. That's right. We're but you know, there. culturally, it's just. I I met a woman once uh, years ago at the state capitol. And we were talking about integration and uh, assimilation and feeling a part of, and how Minnesota can be such a tough state that they make a joke if you haven't met your. For your best friend in the first grade, you're never going to meet them. You know that there's these, and a woman was talking at work in a corporate environment, and all several colleagues were talking about going to the cabin, and the person I was speaking with thought they did. This person didn't understand what is the cabin? Is it a city somewhere? Like so, there's a real <laughs> disconnect between sort of you know Lake Wobegon and you know northern Minnesota folk and trying to invite everyone into different cultures and learn more about each other and accepting and bringing people into their own world and letting them see how they live. That's right. That's why, that's why grassroots organizing is so important because typically what we do at the core, at the core of our work is relationship building, right? Having conversations with people, you know, breaking Mm -hmm. down the barriers, Mm -hmm. speaking against the fear mongering, Mm -hmm. going to greater Minnesota and organizing, talking to our brothers and sisters who are out there who are a lot more in rural areas, mm-hmm. being intentional about setting up spaces that are multiracial so we can all start understanding the commonalities of human, just being human beings. That's how you actually, that's the antidote. You have to actually get out here and talk to each other and not continue to just talk to the people that's in your neighborhood, but also some, and some, there's times where you have to be intentional of reaching out mm-hmm. across communities and talking with people. That's how you start to dismantle the fear, these stigmas, these stereotypes. So if we continue to do that, we'll be we'll be okay in Minnesota. And then it's opportunities like this that actually lift up grassroots organizing, lift up people who are out in the field talking with folks, where people are just not running to go internal or be administrative. Mm. Actually taking time to get out and connect with your neighbors, connect with the people across the street, connect with the people in Ward 5 and Ward 4 in Minneapolis. I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. that's how you actually get to a point where people start looking at themselves as a collective and not all of these broken out groups of people with all these different, you know, tags that they have and labels that they have for each other. Yeah. And it's that, that's what actually perpetuates the systems of oppression is when we keep walking past each other.
and not saying hello. Um, just real quick, Brian, we have a little bit time left, but I grew up in Minneapolis. I'm a Minneapolis kid, and I went to a high school called Marshall University High School and graduated. Okay. I'm 60, graduated in 1981. And our school was really unique. It was a university high school, which was on campus and had all the professors' kids. And then Marshall High School was very traditional and white and sort of uh, industrial neighborhood over there in Southeast and the kids in bobby socks and poodle skirts. And then in 1968, uh, desegregation happened, and they bused students from North High School to Marshall. They closed the university, so it became Marshall University High School. And so that that school, I'm going to do a story on it, became this sort of Petri dish of all different factions of color and race and ability and, and economic situation and it was tough. I mean, I would say if you talk to graduates in the 72, 73, those days were hard. I mean, they threw people That's together. Right. But by the time I got there in 76, people were starting to get along. And my, right. and my friends, you know, I had a very good friend in the eighth grade, and her name was Sylvia. And her friends said, Sylvia, why do you hang out with that white girl? Yeah. Me, me. And Sylvia yeah. said, she's not white. She's my friend. That's right. And, That's right. And, you know, so I feel so blessed that I had that opportunity to yes. experience so many different parts of humanity and, and yes. come to really been invited over to houses where I got to see, eat and drink and laugh with friends and they That's to my house. And I do think that is the magic of the solution of, of all of us getting along. That's right. That's right. And that is the kind of model that we actually want to bring back. And that's the kind of encouragement. It's actually the encouragement of our children to get to know each other. Yep. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a better human being. I wouldn't say better, but there's a more developed human being than somebody who actually has experience of living or engaging in a culture outside of their own. Right. Just right? take, so just that's take exactly that step. So, Brian, yeah. uh, before we let you go, how, if people want to volunteer or be a part of the organization, how do they get in touch if they want to um, do some work with you? Yeah, so uh, first you can go to Isaiah Faith and Democracy. We have a website, uh, just Isaiah Faith and Democracy. It'll come up for you if you just Google it. You can go on our Facebook page. You can look up the same thing, Isaiah Faith and Democracy or Faith in Minnesota, which is our C4 organization, Faith in Minnesota. Uh, Or you can look up Brian Fullman or or go to my page. I'm sorry. uh, On Facebook, it's the Barbershop and Black Congregation Cooperative. Of Isaiah and Minnesota, so they can hit on any one of those. And get get invited to the party. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 